0: Hey there, Horribles. Hope you're doing well. Uh, this is the interview promised on Monday. We talked to Sarah Swire, who plays Steph North in Anna and the Apocalypse, and Alan McDonald. We talked quite a lot about how uh, gay characters and queer women in particular are portrayed in cinema and how Alan deals with writing them, and more specifically and you know, maybe importantly to us, uh, what it's like for for Sarah as a a queer woman to get to play a queer woman in a horror movie and uh get a chance to to be listened to and do it right. Um, so this is that interview. Make sure you'll be back here on Friday to hear us talk to vita Ayala about Annihilation. It's a crazy movie if you haven't seen it. It's real wild and real weird, and I think y'all are gonna enjoy hearing us talk about it. And Vita is a joy. So. See us back here in two days. Until then, stay horrified and enjoy the show. Good evening and welcome to Progressively Horrified. The show where we hold horror to standards. It absolutely never agreed to. <laughs> Good evening, progressively horrified listeners. Jeremy Whitley here with a very special episode of the podcast where we hold horror movies to standards they never agreed to. Today, along with myself and my co-hosts, Ben Kahn and Emily Martin, we have two very special guests, the writer of Anna and the Apocalypse, Alan McDonald, and the choreographer as well as the actress who plays one of our favorite characters, Steph North, Sarah Swire. Guys, thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Thank Thank you. (laughs)
0: it's really amazing to have you guys here when we were covering in the apocalypse which was definitely like our second episode and we were still just like we're going to try and figure it out as we go along we definitely never expected that we'd actually uh, be talking to you guys so this is super
2: cool
1: thank you for you know like being interested in the film and and having such a wonderful chat about it as well i mean i listened to the whole thing
2: (laughs) yeah me too me too i'm so glad to hear that
3: coming I, mean, I did have to briefly go like I better go back and re-listen to that podcast make sure I apologize for anything I need to do
2: <laughs> No do you know what actually I, I think what's really I was kind of raving about your podcast after I uh, heard it only to my wife because we're in lockdown and the, the poor woman only sees me these days there's nothing more insufferable than a writer talking about their, their writing but it was so lovely to be able to go and say oh my god they, they get it they really get it. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know all those and, and honestly uh you know and ben especially like even i think i think there are criticisms you have that are perfectly fair and that are really interesting to hear from your point of view and i what what really strikes me about this movie is that we all went in knowing that this would be what we would call in the uk a marmite film which is you know some people are probably gonna love this and some people are gonna hate this thing that we make and i always think it's really lovely when uh if even the you know the whole piece didn't work for someone completely. They can find things to say that really moved them or really affect them in a positive way. And I think you did that in a really classy fashion, so thank you.
3: Yeah, I mean, and hell, there, was so, there is so much to appreciate and enjoy about this movie. Like, there's just so much heart and care in every level of it. Even if not everything totally works 100%, for me, that level of care
2: and love is always gonna just mean so much.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're all still best friends. It's wild.
2: It is wild, yeah, yeah. We still have a chat group, which we were all lit up in earlier today. Yeah. yeah.
1: Constantly talking. That is so sweet.
4: (laughs) I will say this film, it was, I could see how much everybody was really enjoying themselves. And that is a that is always a dream to see in any sort of medium. you know, for unfortunately, uh, Chris couldn't be here, but um, I can definitely convey a similar amount of excitement and love for this movie. I'm really happy that that Chris and Jeremy and Ben introduced me to it because I had a wonderful time, and i'm gonna I'm gonna come out here and say, I'm not usually a musical fan, but this film was so delightful all the way through. I loved the music. I loved every actor's performance um steph was my favorite character um and i'm not just saying that because you're here but uh, (laughs) steph is is the best um i think
3: more steph was definitely on all of our notes yes (laughs) yeah Yeah,
1: for loving steph because i think we all love her very much too yeah, she was a, a gem
0: i'm sure you heard but one of our recurring notes was like uh yeah every time steph sings it's amazing steph should be singing more in this movie <laughs> we're,
5: we're
1: Steph's big
0: solo number
1: thank you i am working on the three track ep at the moment so that'll come out next year at some point yes please oh, that's gonna be
3: amazing
1: i'm very excited it's been a long time coming it's been a lot of like empty promises from like 50 year old audio engineers who are like I'm gonna make you a star and I'm like all right and then I show <laughs> up in their studios and they're and back a bottle of Jack Daniels, so they can barely hit the keys and I'm like I'm gonna <laughs> go another route <laughs> and then <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> and I'm just like you know trying fecklessly for so long to put my ideas in the hands of other people who have their own ideas about me and realizing kind of recently that I have all the tools to do this alone and that I actually should be able to pull this off with everything that I have, you know, in my brain and in my hands. So I'm just trying to kind of learn how to do this DIY style.
3: Yeah, that's so exciting.
4: Yeah, that's beautifully said too. That's something a lot of artists like out especially right now I feel really need to hear cuz putting your work in the hands of somebody else is really difficult and it's it's exceptionally rare that you can find somebody that that really understands and, you know, vibes well. Um, Which
1: is so incredible even about, you know, but like Anna and and so nice to see that like our friendship translates in mm. the energy of the film because it's so weird that that's not a priority for these ensembles and companies to understand that you need to put people who get along together in a room in order to make good things happen. Yes. Like and that's what you should be striving for. And that doesn't necessarily mean like holy you know like chemistry testing, but like literally like designing your your super squad so all of you are just going to have a riotous time throwing ideas at each other and bringing each other up instead of kind of trying to compromise your personalities in order to get by day to day. I just, I see it, you know, working in Toronto on, on TV sets and I see it in even young graduate films being made that people are just picking the loudest people rather than picking the people who form a family. And I'm so grateful that we got to do that, Nana. <laughs> I'm
3: so, I, I'm so oh. glad to hear that's how it was behind the scenes just because, again, that love for like, just the, for the for the characters especially, just came through so strongly, just that, and it made me really care for all the characters too.
5: Absolutely.
2: That's so lovely to hear. Um, it's really, it's funny you talk about the, you know, we're Steph solo, because uh, A, you're right. Uh, but, uh, you know, so the thing with Anna that's really interesting, because, you know, I, I've done a, I've talked a lot about the movie over the last few years. Um, and it's actually, it's always really lovely that it comes up again around about Christmas because it's, God, it's such a privilege to be part of a thing that people have made their kind of new tr- Christmas tradition. Still blows my mind. But um, you, you find yourself kind of revisiting a lot of those stories and it's very easy to kind of sit and go, well, you know, kind of looked over the script and you had to look at certain points. But actually, I think the truth was we were all brand new. You know, we were all um, just coming up together. We were all rookie filmmakers. Uh, very few of us had gone to film school. Very few of us, and and we were just kind of trying to make this thing happen. In, in terms of the background of the movie, I always think it's really nice to mention um, because it doesn't always come forward when people discover the movie for themselves. That the, the film had a really long kind of history and gestation period, uh, and it came from the mind of a guy called Ryan McHenry, who was a, a Scottish filmmaker. Um, who uh, was at film school when he was watching high school musical with his girlfriend and just had a bit of a temper tantrum and was getting really bored and just out of nowhere threw his arms up and said, God, I just wish a bunch of zombies would come in and eat everyone. So something interesting would happen. (laughs) And that stuck in his head for a long time. And when he got to the end of his second year at film school, all of his kind of contemporaries were making their end of year film and they were doing what you would expect. You know, they were doing student films. So it was all trauma and abuse and slightly strange, surreal, uh, you know, vignettes all put together to show how many, uh, how many French filmmakers they had appreciated down the years. And Ryan, uh, <laughs> Ryan went to his friend, Nason. So Nason Carew is the managing director of Blazing Griffin now, the company that made Anna. Uh, and he was the producer of Anna the Apocalypse alongside Nick Crumb. And he went to his friend, Nason. They had met in their same hometown at a party a few years before. Uh, Nathan, I believe, was studying like international relations at St. Andrew's Uni or something like that. He's not at all. His background isn't in film. And just said to Nason, would you produce a zombie musical for me? And Nathan had said, so the story goes, no, that's a really stupid idea. Why would anyone do that? <laughs> uh, and Ryan had basically just said, oh, please. And they, they got a group of their friends together. Um, and of that group of friends, and this would have been 2009, I guess, or, or maybe 10. Uh, and all of that group of friends who made the original shorts, um, our second assistant director was on that crew, our production designer who was Ryan's best friend uh, was the prop maker on that crew, Nathan and Nick were the producers and I feel like some of the people involved in some of the other departments might also have been involved in that earlier uh, shoot and they, they were on the feature when it was made seven years later but the reason I bring that up with that is this this all predates me and um, they were a bunch of student filmmakers who made a very silly, very fun, exciting, ambitious short that was discovered at a tiny um, local film festival by a production company based out of Glasgow in Scotland. And at exactly the same time, in a sliding doors-esque fashion that still terrifies me to this day, um, I had met a guy at a rookie screenwriter's night over a summer holiday, because I was a high school teacher. I was a high school teacher of English and drama for 12 years. Um, wow. a, lot of, a, lot of, and a lot of that time I was writing Anna um, during the kind of development. Uh, and I had met this other guy at a rookie screenwriter night. A year later, he became a script reader for that film company I mentioned. He and I had become friends and were trying to kind of co-write a horror together. And when this film company picked up the option on this zombie musical short with these young student filmmakers who immediately thought they'd made it, Ryan went off to try to write a feature version, but Ryan was fundamentally a director and it was kind of a 60-page, you know, skeleton of what the movie would be, but very much images and moments. And my friend, Mike, who was the script reader at the company, brought, said, to his, said to his bosses, look, I've got a friend who is a wannabe screenwriter, who's a high school teacher of drama, who <laughs> loves Buffy and Glee. And you should ask him to take a look at this script and just tell you what he thinks. And I received it on like this really rainy Wednesday night. I just got back from school and I was shattered. But I watched the short and thought, God, that's so clever. And I read Ryan's script and kind of went into this fugue state and spent uh, an hour just battering out notes, which I was consistently disclaiming and apologizing for and saying, look, who am I? But here's what I would do. My students wouldn't speak like that, but they would laugh at this. And I think the sequence is great, but maybe you want to think about this with the character. And a week later I was invited to meet Ryan and I was made co-writer. And that was in 2010. Um, And the reason I always bring this up is because we developed the movie for a long time and it wasn't even a Christmas movie at that point. I think it was a year later. On Boxing Day December 26 when Ryan called me very excited to say this should be a Christmas movie uh, and it <laughs> be a, it be Christmas like a summer time. graduation flick and the reason I always like to mention Ryan is because sadly uh, he developed bone cancer in 2015 and we lost him um, so essentially the movie that I had been brought on uh, you know with a brand new friend and co-writer that I'd made uh, from his head um, we worked on it for like three years together and then he got sick and we had to wait during that period for him uh, to, to hopefully get better and, and sadly that's not what happened and I ended up having to become solo writer in a movie that I didn't originate upon which I was previously co-writer but that thing you're talking about Ben the kind of family dynamic Nason again who was one of Ryan's best friends you know in Ryan's kind of final days had gotten to him and said look this is your film what do you want us to do and Ryan had said if you've got a chance you've got to make it and Honestly, I think it was like not even a year after Ryan passed, they managed to find the financing. And then we brought in John McPhail who ended up directing the film for us, who was a just, is a wonderful, wonderful man um, and really full of heart himself and was incredibly respectful of the incredibly difficult job they had to take on. But Nason and Nick as the producers, John as the director, Um, uh, Roddy Hart and Tommy Riley who wrote the music and you know I was in there our script editor um, Gillian Christie even in that development stage we formed a proper little family and we were really working hard together on making this thing happen for ourselves because again this was going to make our careers but also for Ryan and then when the time came to cast a big thing for John obviously was all the people that would be the best performers here, but the chemistry was so important to him. And I remember, I don't think I've ever told Sarah this, I remember Sarah's first self-tape, because John said- Oh, God. (laughs) And what is super interesting about it is, Sarah's take on that character was completely different in her original audition, but it was still awesome. Mm. Uh, And it was a scene which was shot, but ended up being cut from the movie with Anna and Steph in the toilets of the bowling alley. And they have this lovely little quiet moment where they just share about their families, and it's a little touchstone moment between Anna and Steph, which I always really loved. Um, but for pacing issues, it didn't quite make the film. But Steph has this speech about how, um, you know, parents can be a nightmare. And just before her parents disappeared off to take their holiday in Mexico, they were going to take her away for a trip, like a city break. And it ended up being in Birmingham. And it was just very, very <laughs> clear that they just got themselves like, a, like a, a coupon thing. And actually, they didn't care that much. But, but Sarah did this incredible sardonic, kind of like resigned cigarette and hand take on this speech that was gorgeous. And I remember thinking at the time, oh my God, this is great because Steph is a character I'm really struggling with. I think a lot of, this is a lot of good stuff in the page. I'm really happy with what I'm doing. But what I haven't found yet is that, that, that little spark that tells me this is what makes her who she is compared to everyone else. Hmm. And it was right there on Sarah, and the moment she did that, that audition. And John was saying from day one, look, this is who I want. And Aww. then we cast her. And Sarah did something completely different with the character afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> so much more interesting and so much better. But that all came from the same thing you're talking about there. That kind of collaborative family. Everyone getting together and working things out together. And mm-hmm. I have already done that, that monologue thing that I always try not to do. So I shall pass over to Sarah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but I was just going to add, like, I didn't know what I was going to do with Steph until everything was on. Like, it was like... Yeah. I think it's it is a combination of that and the fact that like people bring out the best in you and if you do have like a fam around you and a really strong community then the possibility for everybody to yes and like in sure. the tradish improv way to provide a you know an option and then to build upon it is just like limitless and it started with meeting everybody else and being like how do I fit into this group of people this group of kids as our characters but also like a person outside of these roles and then I got the costume on and I cut my hair and I dyed it white and then suddenly we're there in the cafeteria scene which was the first scene we shot out of everything. And like I started talking and it was not what I rehearsed.
5: <laughs> uh, <that's laughs> and, <surprising>. like,
1: <laughs> and like I started doing all these weird mannerisms and this weird speech thing came out and I was like, oh, this is who I was. Like literally just like this is who I was in high school. I was huh. like a really oh. weird queer kid and all my friends <laughs> who are now out and proud and queer were so weird. We were having (laughs) such a hard time trying to figure out what version of some sort of like gendered archetype we should present today instead of like being ourselves. And it was like a huge struggle. And I think that that kind of like representation of this dysphoria that a lot of people who are queer and are constantly told to be one thing or the other never really kind of like have this grounded sense of communication or self or identity and it makes you flail a bit. Like, of course, she's angry and passionate about the things she wants to transform in the world. And that's kind of what guides her, truly her herself and her spirit through the world. That's her soul's purpose. And that's very clear. And if you have that, then you can kind of, you know, a person can flower very strongly out of that if you know what you want to do with your limited time on this planet. But yeah, awkward and gawky and gangly and and stuttery and like slightly on the spectrum like not quite fully um and doesn't know that herself either and and it's very hard to kind of i think especially for women to even know that they're on the spectrum sometimes and uh trying to convey that as authentically and as genuinely as possible because that needs to be seen
2: i'm so glad you said that because jeremy had asked (laughs) me a question about that on twitter uh when we first got into contact because obviously in the in the podcast you guys had mentioned that there was uh, a sense in looking at Steph as a character that perhaps she's on the spectrum and Jeremy asked, was that an intention? And my reply was was basically like, I'd always seen the character as a bit of an activist and an outsider and she definitely didn't fit. But that canteen day is so important to me in my memory of the movie because, you know, uh, we all were flying by the seat of her pants and watching what um, Sarah did. There's a line at the end of that that scene where, and I added it so late, where she says to uh, to the other kids when she's organi- she's arranged with chris to to shoot the um, the soup kitchen that night against savage 's wishes and she says let's uh, let's see that asshole try to get out of this one and in my head, when I wrote that line, it was like, I want to give Steph a little sense of like fire and ambition as she leaves this scene and show that she's not been beaten down by that. And in my mind, it was very much like almost under her breath to herself. But obviously I'm not on set and I'm not blocking it. I'm not the director, I'm not the actor. And watching what Sarah did instead, turning it into this really awkward attempt at humour to bond with these other kids, which completely <laughs> fails, is so <laughs> much better than what I wrote, <laughs> so much better. It's such hearing that daring from moment. you, yeah. This is
0: uh, this is incredible because I have all of this stuff written down. I wanted to ask you, and you guys are just interviewing yourselves. And <laughs> uh, that was something that very much came up. I think Ben had some some things to say when we were uh, talking about it about how there there are so many films in which there is an attempt to convey the sexuality or the queerness of a character, and they don't seem to know how to do it, and that. Steph seems like from the get go she just uh has sort of this honest queerness about her. And like that that's that that's never really in question of that character. And um I think also a lot of a lot of the people I know who who have those qualities, who exhibit those qualities, are also, you know, on on the spectrum somewhere. And I think that very much came across to me. And I was like, oh, like this is what, you know, whether it's necessarily intentional or not, it seems like this is a conveying of of somebody who is is on the autism spectrum in an honest, not, you know, intentionally ginned up for, you know, for props kind of way.
1: Hmm. I have quite a few, three of my best friends are uh, on the autism spectrum and they're all women and are just like so genuine and remarkable and... Oh, you would never, truly, truly, truly never know. And like, but it's just this, I don't even know how to describe it. Truly beautiful kindness and self-awareness and awareness of the world that I, that is hilariously never really exhibited in like, which is a horrible term, but like neurotypical people is just like, I just have such a, I like, they are incredible and didn't learn till way later on in their lives that they were slightly autistic. And like, and had like this weird coming to with it, and like coming to understand it better, and um, and what that means for them, and how, you know, the different prisms in which they perceive the world through, and it's like they're yeah, and such an interesting demographic. Specifically, I think in women, it's really interesting. There's a lot of really interesting documentaries made about it as well, that I only found afterwards. Um, but yeah,
4: the genuineness of of all of these characters. For a movie that's like a comedy zombie musical, is incredible, and I really I, I love to hear that, you know, Alan, that you were a high school teacher because that really comes across. Like those the, the <laughs> um, and you know Sarah bringing something from your your um high school past, that all of that um really enriches those characters and gives us such a wonderful, um, delightful look on you know just these honest and genuine characters and i i work with teens i work i've been working with teens for the last 12 years and i can say you know that these this is true to them you know all of them and many of them are on the spectrum and some more than others but um you know i think that it's really great to have a fun movie that's not about their struggles so much as uh you know have those characters there and have them be genuine and have you know not have all like a lot of uh movies that i've seen about teens just have so much of this contrived like you know here's our archetype here and there's that archetype there but um you know while we see archetypes in anna the apocalypse they're they're all i mean they're they're subverted certainly but they're they're just people they're honestly genuinely wonderful people and um it was uh, there was a point where chris and ben i believe were talking about how they were dancing like teenagers and that was, and, and you know, um, Sarah. I don't know if you, uh, how much you were part of that particular scene where um, Anna, uh, w- they were in the the graveyard and they were doing these like f- really kind of funky dances during yeah. that number. That was like
1: um, the best day.
4: But continue
5: <laughs> like the
3: best day. Like that, that was, was so much character, so much individual characters. I felt got, got communicated just through how they were dancing.
1: Well, I think it's really important as a choreographer is that you're in charge of people's self-worth in a weird way when you start telling them how to conduct their bodies because that's theirs. (laughs) Yes. Um, And I think a lot of choreographers, and that's totally fine. It's a different way of working, but come in with an agenda and you fulfill the agenda and you have to practice militantly until you achieve what the choreographer is set out to achieve. But I work and have worked mostly with people who don't have an extraordinary background in dance. Um, <laughs> and even if many dancers do, like I like were r- riddled with dysmorphia and doubt because of growing up in like really archaic institutions, dance institutions that they'd still put your weight on the wall. And like, that's what I came from and that's what I'm afraid of. And what I want more than anything is to make people Provide people an opportunity to express themselves physically that feels like they ha- can do like, can do it, and like there's nothing that there's no amount of editing, there's no amount of directing that can take away the look of confusion and fear and self doubt in someone. But if you give people an opportunity to just be themselves and to play and to celebrate, like that, it always translates. And that always comes through and you see people getting lost in something they love and then you too because we are we're all you know the same creatures we feel that energy intrinsically and empathically through the screen so what you want to do is create an environment for people to feel alive rather than you know fail and i think that's yeah that's been was my mission with the film it continues to be my mission as a choreographer yeah it's, it's awesome. interesting
0: to me did you say that because i think um i think right after we we first started talking about uh, having you come on. I, I decided to go uh dig up some other uh Sarah Swire projects and try and uh, <laughs> see see what else you'd done. Uh because uh and the Apocalypse was you know the first thing I'd seen you in. And uh one thing that occurred to me right away because I watched Listen Up Emily and uh <gasps> Some Other Place and uh the one man flash mob series.
1: Oh my god! I forgot about <laughs> all- that.
0: They're all, they're all available online. Um, and I was like, I, I feel like Sarah must like have a thing about character and about like just getting into, you know, these these interesting characters and getting into their heads in these stories because, uh, you know, those are all so very like personal feeling. Even, you know, the, the wild weirdness of, you know, the, the one man flash mob story. Mm-hmm. But uh, especially like, I, I think watching Listen Up, Emily was where I actually figured out that like you were a choreographer. Cause I was like, oh, she's she's actually like a really good dancer. And I was like, <laughs> oh wait, hold on. She's listed as choreographer on Anna of the Apocalypse too. Oh, wow. You feel like that's what kind of draws you to stuff like End of the Apocalypse is, you know, this-
1: Dual this responsibility character. <laughs> or characters. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's the no matter what, right? Like if something is absent of character or full of character, I'm still going to take it and embody it and turn it into my version of that. Like, um, but that's half the fun is, like, is trying to taste these words and feel them in your, in, in your brain and feel them in your body and figure out how they make you feel and figure out how to make them sound natural and figure out how to provide something interesting to the person you're acting against. Like, I think we all forget as actors too that it's, a, it's like a service job. It's like you're a part of – you're servicing something constantly. You're servicing the person in front of you. You're servicing the writer. You're servicing a narrative. You're servicing a bigger picture. And we – and young actors get given this – I don't know. We just – I think there's been a lot of mistakes made in Hollywood. <laughs> but, like, this fe- feeling that they're the most important thing and they're probably the least important thing, actually. And you got to provide a good role to the piece so other people can – bounce off that you know like all you're doing is providing offers for other people to be brilliant if you don't have a feeling of that then people don't i don't know i just i'm always aware that no matter what i'm doing i'm doing it for the people around me so they can do a good job and wanting to make sure that everybody else is thriving it's awesome it's important yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. I,
3: I have to ask hearing that uh that you were a teacher for such yeah. a long while uh any true to life experiences in the arthur savage character <laughs>
4: <laughs> yes, yes
2: please so this uh, so uh I went, when the when the movie was released um two really lovely things happened one of which made me laugh a lot uh but a lot of my old students went to see it uh mm-hmm. which honestly just mate i spent a week crying as, as messages came Aww. in from people i hadn't taught for like five years coming back Aww. and just saying i went to see her movie and i can't believe my drama teacher's name was on the screen and i'm yeah, so excited it,
5: it, was, it was lovely
2: Aww. but also a bunch of my old colleagues teaching colleagues all went together went to the the gft in glasgow the kind of the film theater in glasgow um and all went out together one night to go see the film. And then he sent me a massive selfie of like 17 of them sitting at the bar afterwards, having seen my movie, which was beautiful. And then the very next message was, so which one of us is Savage based on? <laughs> 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 to, to, which, to which I said, it's an amalgam, darling. But uh, <laughs> yeah, but no, uh, so the, Savage as a character, it's a really, Savage is a weird one to talk about. Um, in, the, in the original short, Savage was a... Um, in fact he wasn't called savage at the time. the we gym teacher the right? Teacher. yeah he was the PE teacher uh, played by uh, Callum I believe who's our who's our zombie, zombie Santa, Santa in Claus. the final yeah. feature. Um, Callum in a weird twist of fate was in the adult uh, youth theater in the same hometown as me when I was in youth theater way back in the day myself. so like we other from when I was like 10 years old and then didn't see each other again until much much later when we made a short together with the same people who would make Anna. very strange. anyway um, that original short, um, Ryan had, had, had kind of gravitated towards the idea of, well, if gonna we have a villain in high school, it's obviously the PE teacher, right? Um, <laughs> and for, for a while, that character remained that way. In the very first draft of the feature, uh, there's a sequence where Anna and John play dodgeball, and they're the last two left. Uh, <laughs> and I really liked it. Like, there was something, I still to this day thought it was a really fun sequence. But there came a point. The movie went through so many different forms. There was, there was, I don't think I've ever told this story either. There was a point after he was a PE teacher where the, the film became super political for one draft. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and not even like socially political, like politically political. And it, it, was set, it was set on election day. And there was a whole thing about savage belonging to like the local council. It was far too complex. I don't remember why we went down that alley. But we played a lot with the idea of authority figures. And in the end, what I'd said to Ryan when we settled was the problem with PE Teacher is it's kind of charged. And the thing that you did in the original movie where you like hog ties Anna and stuff, it just felt a bit sexual in a way that was super uncomfortable. And when we were thinking about the movie as a whole and what it had to say, the other thing to remember is this movie was written and then shot across the 2010s. And in the UK, that means austerity. Mm -hmm. Um, And very specifically, you know, obviously I was teaching until 2015 and we made the movie in 2017. So... I watched all of those uh, public services be stripped back. I watched those kids in my class who had learning needs lose their learning support and get thrown into a class of 30 with everyone else and just expected to keep up. Like I watched I, all of this stuff happen.
3: I think you just I, answered your own question on where that uh, political draft. Yeah. Go. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: Um, I, I, and basically where we settled as we kind of moved into the later drafts was we want to tell a story about generational differences. Uh, And in Scotland, we had the independence referendum in 2014. And in the UK, we had the Brexit referendum in 2016. Hmm. And both referenda, referenda, I think that's just what posh people call it. Both referendums. (laughs) Referenda, um, Yeah, there you go. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's like, it's like an octopus. Referendodes. Um, uh, Both of them divided down generational differences, lines very very starkly and when I started to think about okay so we want an authority figure for Anna to bounce off but the head teacher is too it's too obvious it's too simple and the one thing that I never know I should say this is absolutely not best on not based on old colleagues but there is a running uh, kind of slightly slightly tired eye roll that goes amongst career teachers who have really really done the work you know those of us who stayed late and did the clubs and the school shows who lost our lunch times when you know a student wanted to come up in tears to talk about their bullying or the fact that they had been off for a week because they had to go for an abortion there's a bunch of stuff that happened in my career which i feel incredibly privileged to have been part of that taught me a lot about young people and then there were the other teachers definitely in the minority but they existed who existed purely to climb the ladder Hmm. i remember explaining this to ryan one day that like head teacher and like head of PE, are too simple. What we want is the deputy head who's always wanted to run the school. Uh, because you will always find teachers in promoted posts who are less interested in teaching and more interested in it becoming their own personal fiefdoms. Mm. Uh, and that's where Savage came from. And it was never based on one, absolutely never based on one particular individual. But you would. Pick a little, you know. There was a the very earliest draft. He he was quoting a lot of um, classical references. He referenced the Romans a lot and stuff. And it all became quite tedious in the end. But the notion that he had that kind of slightly mannered way of speaking, and that he very deliberately would watch his p's and q's and would lecture a lot, and just generally thought, you know, generally expected that, he, generally um, considered himself to be an, uh, you know, an authority and an expert in most things. That all stayed. Um, and there was a backstory which sadly kind of got lost in the mix a little bit. And it was in previous scripts, but actually in my head, this is still canon. And if we ever do more with the property in the future, it remains canon. He knew Tony when they were growing up. So in my mind, Savage grew up in that town. And I think he was a bullied kid. And I think he was the kid who uh, never really got out of town, but has found a way up a ladder into a position of authority in town, and is now determined to punish everyone for the way he felt growing up and that's why he hates kids that's why he acts the way he acts and that's why he kind of goes full uh, Colonel Kurtz towards the end I, <laughs> I would be remiss and remiss however if I didn't point out that as much as those lines are those lines on the page um Paul Kay when he took on the role definitely brought a lot of himself to it and had a very specific um take on how he wanted to play the Uh, pettiness of that character and the broadness of that character and there's a lot of Paul in the way that he approached that Um, and there are a couple of improvised lines as well Um, you know here and there Uh, I wish, I wish I could take credit for Withdraw Tongues but that was Paul. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) (laughs) Withdraw your tongues! That sounds very on the moment, it it felt Uh, like... uh, uh,
3: Our theory was that he was related to immortal caveman DC villain Vandal Savage. I I love
2: that I really love that but I love the idea that he was the run to the litter he was was the savage no one ever talks about. which also I'm perfectly happy to accept as canon Uh, along with Anna and Steph getting together at the end but I don't even think that's fan canon anymore I think most people just accept that now. yeah Yeah, it's
0: it's interesting to me that uh, you say all that about Savage, because my, my wife is also a high school teacher and we've talked frequently about the like the weird quality that um, if if you want to do more from being a high school teacher that apparently the next step is becoming a principal and the people who are good at one of those things are not good at the other thing and there's that should not be a career path
2: it's it's you know it's rare uh but i do i i knew a couple of principal teachers actually who were also phenomenal teachers and who i believe actually only went for the principal job because they knew what the alternative would be Uh, and they were like okay well i need to do this because if i don't we're all in for hell for the next 10 years and they Mm. remained wonderful teachers i know a lot of really great principals and i know a lot of really great deputies and i wouldn't want anyone at my old job to think that i was um, dismissing that. I do think though that in, in education generally there is a really strange mismatch when it comes to those who entered the job vocationally because they wanted to teach and then the necessity for management uh, and, and where those two things meet. But that is a very boring topic to get into instead of talking about Anna the Apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Well, the character is still so wonderfully diabolical. I mean, the, every combination that it's, it really makes sense when you're talking about how he was bullied and all that kind of yeah. stuff, because he's, he's also seems like a person that is, is always waiting for that chance at revenge, but is also obsessed with becoming the cartoon authority figure, you know, the yeah. and as, as uh, Jeremy and Ben and Chris said in the review, you know, the middle management dream. Of you know <laughs> being the the manager,
3: <laughs> and, I, mean, and but, I love that backstory too. It fits so well with uh, his solo. Num- like nothing's going to stop me now. Yeah, which Paul K was just
2: he was so so much fun in that.
0: ate All the scenery on that scene. He, <laughs> he was, had a great day.
2: day. I saw after he shot that, and he had completely ruined his back. Oh, <laughs> he, was, no. he was like I had an amazing day yesterday. Amazing day yesterday, mate. I can't. I just can't move today. <laughs> it's just really so bad. oh yeah he had a great time on that
1: threw himself into that that was yeah. wild there were things where I'm like like we suggested some stuff and then of course they were like we can't do that because of safety problems and Paul's like I'm just gonna do it I'm like I didn't don't tell them that I said you could <laughs> but you can do whatever you want Paul
0: <laughs> so, Sarah how did you end up uh, becoming the the choreographer for the movie because you you auditioned for it as an actress right
2: Alan how did that happen <laughs> But uh, well, you know that yeah, that, there were a lot of conversations going on at the time. That that's probably more of a Nathan and John and Nick question. I do know that when you were floated for the part of Steph, I remember John in a phone call after saying she can choreograph as well. Uh, and I was like, well, that that sounds excellent. Uh, I guess uh, I don't know much about it. So I, I don't. I, I do know that <laughs> maybe I shouldn't. No, this is fine. It's fine. It all worked out. Um, there were some issues getting Sarah over in pre-production. Oh, yeah, that was
1: crazy. I oh my god. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Uh, which it all worked out. Uh, and I, I do think there are many stories to be told, maybe considerably further in the future uh, <laughs> about, about the, the travails that Sarah had on set. But um, there was a little bit of concern during pre-production that, you know, okay, one of our actors not being able to arrive until the end of the week is inconvenient but we can manage it and then there was a realization amongst the production team was like oh god she's the choreographer as well and <laughs> that led to a few sleepless nights I believe
1: it all turned out <laughs> fine I, um, I also had a weird sliding door experience where I met John briefly at a theater um, before I even knew who he was he was just happened to be there and like I was up at the canteen buying a coffee and he just walked up beside me and just started talking to me Um. And then I never like for like three minutes. He was like, hey, what's up? I'm like, I'm Sarah. He's like, I'm John. We just like had a nice kind of throwaway chat, didn't think anything of it, forgot who he was. And then like two years later, he pops up on a on a Skype call. <laughs> and I'm like, hi. And he's like, who? I'm like, I know you. And he's like, yeah, and we couldn't figure it out. And eventually we figured out that we like had met just like so briefly all those years ago, had a very pleasant exchange, and then finally, at like, you know, cross Atlantically were conspiring about this film. It's so
2: funny. <laughs> the movie's full of that. Um, another little Easter egg. The guy who plays the head teacher with the I'm retiring badge on was John McPhail's old English teacher who he got to do it. But again, oh. by a weird twist of fate, was also only my second ever teacher mentor at my second student placement. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't seen him since I was a student teacher uh, oh. 12 years before. Uh, and wow. I, I walked to the set Michael? <laughs> <Is> <laughs> Alan? <laughs> And then I was, like, oh, this is amazing! I didn't realize you were doing some extra work. And he went, yeah, I taught John. I like, what?
1: This <laughs> is also crazy. Okay, another Easter egg. Chris, Chris Laveau, who plays Chris, mm. Chris being Chris playing Chris always, um, <laughs> uh, was in Toronto for some. I don't know why. Like moved to Toronto while I was in Toronto, and the night. This is an very triggering thing to bring up but like the original night that trump was elected all those years Uh, ago Mm -hmm. we were across the road from each other like i could have walked across if like if my friends decided to get out of that bar and walk to the next bar i probably would have been sitting in the same room with christopher
2: that's so weird yeah it's meant to be
4: yeah meant to be (laughs) meant to be god i wish i was in a bar at that night
5: (laughs) (laughs) uh
0: I'd still be there.
4: Yeah.
5: <laughs> uh,
0: well, speaking of Chris, uh, I think Ben, you had a question about uh, Chris and Lisa's ending in this story, right? Mm.
3: Yeah, I think I talked about it a little, like just the care and the humanity that went into these characters. I feel like Chris and Lisa ended up being kind of, at the start of the movie, I went to it being like, oh, okay, yeah, no, zombie chow, I know how this goes. Yeah. And then when they did get bitten, I was crying. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, and just, uh, and heartbroken by it. But then with the ending, with them still shuffling together, you know, being able to, like, kind of grab each other's hands a little bit. Do you consider it, like, a bittersweet ending? Like, do you think there's still, like, some happy ending there for them a little bit? Or do you just see it as a tragedy?
2: It's a hard one, isn't it? Um, Yeah, Chris and Lisa, uh, that scene, the scene in the staff room is my favorite scene in the movie. And it was always my favorite scene in the script as well. Um, which, hey, maybe that reflects a little badly on me in terms of maybe I was, maybe I was focused on the wrong part of the ensemble. Uh, but <laughs> I, I always, always loved it. Now, what's really interesting about that staff room scene, interesting, maybe only to me, the staff room we shot that in looks so similar to the staff room of the school that I worked in all that time. And so much of that school sunk into my subconscious when I was writing the movie. Even back in the very first drafts, Chris was, Chris was always gonna die at that part of the story. Um, in very early drafts, we Ryan and I le- leaned quite heavily into the film buff stuff. And actually the last line that he used, which we thought was very clever at the time, it makes me cringe a bit now, was uh, it was actually going to be Anna in the room with him. He was going to get stuck with zombies. And the last thing he was going to say to her was, fly, you fool. Oh, we <laughs> thought we were-, <laughs> we were so clever. We were so clever. Uh, but what really struck me about that was uh, my friend, Mike, actually, I mentioned earlier, had read an early draft of the script. And when I pitched the scene to him, he was like, you know that's fucking stupid, right? I was like, no, it's going to be brilliant. It's going to be so heartwarming. And when he read the script, he said, okay, look, um, I don't think the line works, but the scene really does. Uh, and, and the fact that I was able, we were just able to melt even his heart when he was so against the line told me that the scene was always going to work. Um, As we played around, across the course of the development, different people died at various stages. There was a draft where John lived. There was a draft where Tony lived. There was a draft where they both lived that Ryan and I hated. And he was (laughs) very much a a financier like, well, you know, we should probably have some romance and you can't kill our dad. So in the end, we spitefully killed both. Uh, But but, you know, uh, there was a draft where Lisa lived, but Chris always kind of died. Steph is a character I'll come back to in a second because there was a lot of thought that went into that. But the thing with Chris was always, a really sweet guy who's just, he's fundamentally, what I love about Chris is the characters um, and Chris Laveau was great here. I always fought against the notion of, oh, but he needs complex, you know, he needs real complexity. He really, he needs darkness. For me, it was like, he's raised by his grand. There's darkness there. Okay. There's some pain there clearly in his past, but Chris is a ray of sunshine. He lives his life through film. He doesn't pay enough attention to the present, but ultimately he believes things will always turn out for the best. That's why his death will work. But with Lisa, I tortured myself for a long time about where that would go. Where I settled in the end was, it was really important that John died because the story was not about well yeah there's a whole other story about was writing Hollywood ending and talking to Roddy and Tommy and John about if John is going to sing sometimes the nice guys don't always get the girl it's super important that the next thing Anna sings completely pushes back against that concept and all the way through the DNA of the movie was the notion that if John lives it's going to feel a lot like we're setting this up because you know that Anna is his prize or he is Anna's prize for surviving so John had to die what that meant to me, though, was I wanted some—I wanted a really lovely payoff to do with love somewhere in the movie. And, you know, I'm sure Emily will, will be on board with this as well, um, or, or your wife, Jeremy. One thing you see, like, there is nothing more fierce or pure and ultimately sort of doomed than teenage love. And when you <laughs> see it, it is so intense and so gorgeous and so all-encompassing. But for many, not for all, but for many, there is not certainly not a future at the same intensity in that and I always found something kind of beautiful in the end that okay if Chris finds Lisa and Lisa finds Chris they, they, they get back together they've spent recently again it's maybe a bit more headcanon but they've spent the last few months really thinking about the future and I think Lisa's a little worried about the future because you know she's the kind of star of the show she has the boyfriend she's kind of loved high school but after this how's this going to work out I think there's something kind of beautiful that they're sort of frozen in amber at the end. Um, I think the scene is immensely sad, but for me, what really made it work was coming up with the idea of the video and just thinking, mm. actually, if Chris's entire arc is about, I need to find meaning and uh, I, you know the way that I look at the world can't just be pure optimism. I need to find meaning in that. And Lisa's arc is all about kind of coming into herself and being noticed and, and, and finding a sense of, um, what's the words, you know, finding, I think people don't take Lisa seriously and come the end, she's been through serious stuff, but she's kind of maintained her sense of self. And I think when they both reach that point, looking at videos of the friends who have been their life up to this point, knowing that this is all about to end, for me, it was always beautiful enough that they did it together. And I think what Chris and Lisa, sorry, I just, Chris being played (laughs) by a guy called Chris consistently trips me up. I think what Chris (laughs) and Marley did so incredibly on that day, was find the, find real humanity in the center of what is quite a heightened and could have been quite a soapy moment um, where what they play is not, I don't think they play Romeo and Juliet. I don't think they're playing the tragedy of the doomed lovers. I think they are playing two young people who love each other dearly and in that moment have become adults. And I've just realized this is a bad thing that has happened and we just have to process it, but at least we have each other. And that little kiss, and that little hug that they share at the end breaks my heart every single time. Uh, on the day that we shot it, they were both incredible and the set was in pieces. And I still remember our, um, our sound guy who, um, you know, lovely, lovely guy, very gruff, kind of kept to himself. Cam? Yes, Cam. <laughs> Chris, Chris came off set after doing the first um, take and he needed to gather himself a bit. Cam, who I had not seen do this to anyone else, stepped away from his desk, watched, walked up to Chris, shook his hand and went, Absolutely brilliant, mate. Oh! And I just remember thinking, oh. okay, if even our sounds—you know—if if even our sound guy is properly moved by this, then the moment clearly works. It's that's my very weird. long Alan answer to say I think it's beautiful cry. and I think it's heartbreaking.
3: It yeah. really is such a, it yeah. is such a beautiful moving scene. Yeah, I, I think that's, it's absolutely.
0: I think it's a credit to both both you as a writer and to the actors as well that there's this sort of shorthand in the beginning of the movie leading up to Hollywood ending that allows you to kind of go, oh, I know this kid. Oh, I know yeah. this kid. Yeah. I know I know who this is. You know, these, oh my God, these two teenagers that just won't stay off of each other. Oh my God, <laughs> I know these kids. And that by the end, you're like, oh no, I know these kids. Like, yeah, exactly. They're like The people that I, I actually care about, like they have... You know depth and interest and everything to them really it's it's a really interesting gradual transition that the movie does that i think that is sort of the peak of right there
2: i think what else really makes it work though um and, and it's easy to forget in the scene because it's not the focus of the scene but i love sarah's performance in that scene because she is not given as much to do as the other two and it is all on her face um and the little moment uh where chris gives her a little wave was literally scripted you know chris chris gives her a little wave she waves back And then she leaves. I think was the way the the, the, the script um, was written. And what Sarah does with that kind of half-hearted, slightly resigned kind of, of course this happened. Wave and the way, oh Sarah, it breaks my heart every time. The way you put both straps of your bag over your back, both both straps your back over your shoulders like you're a little kid, and just wander (laughs) out, wander out of frame. Ah, it kills me every time I watch it because I think that tells the audience. I think that gives the audience permission. To be sad rather than uncomfortable with all the emotion that's happening.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Aww, yeah. I think
0: you. Sarah, between that scene and the the scene in the office right before that, where you're <laughs> you're going through the <laughs> confiscated stuff, you do so much without like words in those couple of scenes that uh, that works so well because that thank that you. scene is simultaneously like so funny and also kind of terrifying. That. The, there
1: was a component of that which got cut which was a beautiful moment that alan had written in where oh she yeah. finds a card that a student had written to savage um and it's really sweet and it might be the only student it's
2: the only one he ever received yeah
1: yeah the only christmas Aww. card he ever received and it's like hope and it's just like the nicest little quick message that someone just decided to give him and it meant so much to him that he kept it and like there's this really like heartbreaking moment that it was just again like For timing and editing and all that had to be cut but she finds it and she's like oh my god like just like this weird realization even in stuff because everybody has to have some sort of kind of like existential turning point we're dealing with life and death here but like (laughs) um with her just going fuck like people are more complicated than i ever Mm -hmm. realized and this man has everybody has something to them that it can't be explained and um, so much more depth than just what they provide to you on the surface and, and like that kind of like knowing that, that was almost in like the version of when that was included for me at least for Steph was like that was her moment of like growing up. Um, like she has so much maturity in so many other aspects of her life, but the missing pin for her perhaps was like true compassion. And like, and uh, rather than kind of being propelled through this world with a chip on her shoulder and and fueled by spite, similar to Savage in a weird way. Mm
5: -hmm.
1: Um, And then, and, and the possibility that she could turn into something like Savage having, being a young kid who was bullied and made fun of. And then realizing, like seeing that being like, okay, this is who I'll never become. And like I'll always learn to be compassionate and that kind of stuff. So like it was like a really nice moment. Alan.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I had completely forgotten it existed until you said it. Now my heart's broken again. I love that little moment. But there's only so much space for things. I think you you can, you can overthink stuff when you're screenwriting because there's always the concern that people are not going to get what you're trying to say. Mm. There's a lovely, there's that little moment in the corridor outside which leads into that um, staff room scene where Chris Laveau plays this beautifully uh, where you're walking down the corridor just before you find Lisa and uh, Steph has that little thing where they, they kind of apologize for their fight earlier and Steph and again you deliver this beautifully she says it's okay I, I, know, how, I, I know how I get or I know how I am or something like that mm-hmm. and then Chris just replies well it's okay you've got, you've got us now and it's like such a small little exchange but what is on both of your faces completely sells it. And I remember sitting, talking to Jillian going, it's not enough, it's just two lines. Like this is not gonna get us an arc. This is just a random couple of lines. I feel like there's not enough. And Jillian was the one that said, you just need to trust that the scene's gonna play. Mm. Um, and it really sets up everything that comes afterwards. Uh, so a lot of screenwriting I find sometimes is kind of overwriting just to make sure that everybody who's involved in acting and directing understands your intention. And then they can do everything that you've written with less. Yeah. Uh, just as long as you're all on the same page.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Mm. Do you know what I will say though in favor of the production on this because I haven't seen this a ton since even though I've worked with wonderful people but one thing that Nathan and Nick were very strong on at the beginning was um, and actually to be fair John as well was that we were very much working as a team and everyone had their roles and there was of course a hierarchy where there needed to be but John was very insistent that I be on set um, and Nick and Nathan were very open and welcoming to that as well and it didn't I, d- I don't know if it was always um, a comfortable thing for everyone across the crew mm-hmm. in terms because it was an odd thing. It's not a thing that's done in the UK. You know, writers don't come onto sets, especially in film. That's very much considered a kind of an American showrunner model. Um, and there was a sense in that first week of just kind of like, why is he here? And you could definitely <laughs> see people trying to work out if I was a producer. It's like, I guess he just must have some hierarchy position or something. It's like, no, I'm literally the writer. Um, but what was really great about that was I got to meet I got to meet the actors during pre-production. And I got to have, you know, even... I don't even know, I don't think any of them with the exception of maybe one little conversation with Ella and one with Marley were actually formalized let's talk about the character conversations but just having the ability to hang out on set, talk about the scene you're doing today, how did you yesterday go, how are you finding things, I think it really helped us all get on the same mm. page with what we were doing and we, we were all very much doing, making the same thing and yeah. that left me as a writer feeling so much more confident, like if John If John's blocking in the scene does something different than I intended, it's fine because I know he's got this. I know that he knows what the intention of the scene is. Mm. Um, And there was another another day we were horribly running over. Bless John, the scene in the theatre at the end. He talks about it like he's got PTSD to this day. I think it's like a 12 page scene or something. It's (laughs) proper screenwriter 101 breaking every rule because there's like two songs and a fight in it. Um, But um, getting through that was really hard and we were running over. And just off my own steam, seeing how stressed everyone was getting, I went back up, John let me work out of his office and I went back up and I looked at the script and realized that there were two other scenes we were meant to shoot that day. And if I really thought about altering one, I could totally cut a scene. And I was able to go back to Nathan and say, look, I've got this idea, I don't know how you guys are getting on. And then he brought in John and I was just able completely off my own steam, we cut the scene. Uh, actually, I offered to cut two and John said, wow. no, 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 keep, keep one because I want to keep that one. But if you can cut that other one, that would really help. And in the end, I think all I had to do was, no, this probably reflects badly on the script because it should be more efficient. But what all I had to do in the end, I think, was just alter a couple of lines in one of the scenes we were gonna shoot. And I literally made an edit suggestion on the day and just said, so if instead of the script, you cut to this instead, this is all gonna make sense. And we made our day. Now, that was the only time I did something so drastic while I was on set, but if I hadn't been there and hadn't been welcome to be there, we would have run over that day and they would have had real problems in other places. And I think that really counted across the entire cast and crew. There was a sense that we were always talking to each other, passing each other, hanging out, and really being on top of the whole project. Yeah. And as a writer, I learned so much, both about performance and about post and other people's jobs. I, I hung out at the monitors with the standbys for, um, for, for makeup and costume and got to know them really well. Got to know how uh, Emma, our fight coordinator, uh, she came up to me with the most incredible question one day where she was she was getting the fight coordination together it was it was the big fight at the end it was with Anna and a bunch of zombies and she came up with a copy of the script and said to me look I'm so sorry I'm gonna ask you do you really like it says here in the script Anna's thrown against the wall by the zombies I really don't want to like i am not wanted to you know I I don't want to step in your toes I don't want to get in your kind of process or whatever would it be okay if it just knocked her over and it took me a moment to realize like oh You have to take this literally, don't you? You have to take this word by word. The reason that that script says Anna is thrown against a wall by zombies is because 12 months ago we needed a financier to get excited about this scene. And that's (laughs) that's why those verbs and adjectives are in there. But now you do the scene the way that works for you. I didn't know any of that. But I also think a lot of writers don't because they never get onto sets. And I also mm-hmm. think fight like coordinators and uh, choreographers. And I, I actually think a lot of um, the, uh, the director's department as well don't really understand how development works either because they never see each other's sides of the, the coin.
1: Yeah, I'm having Nathan, a similar. John,
2: yeah, they, they helped us all do that.
1: similar experience right now i'm choreographing on something else right now where the director's like okay but you know you got to read the stage direction before you do the choreography i'm like i am but that doesn't make sense like it's like it's like similar i guess to that experience of being like that's not we we need to be careful when we take these things literally specifically i guess with like you know even like alan what you said about just wanting to kind of like inspire people to fund the film yeah um it's the same idea of like inspiring people to want to put this show into motion is like using a particular set of language adjectives and verbs that are really titillating but like actually aren't can change and totally. should change yeah. depending on the artists that are brought onto the um, the project.
3: I know in the comic book world realm it's kind of uh, similar, at least on the script writing standpoint, where like I try to be detailed and give an idea of how like the panel could go, but I always try to use language let the artist know like this is just a suggestion if you got a sure. better way you want to draw it go with your like you're the visual draw yeah. art maker you do you <laughs> <laughs> you're just as the artist guy.
4: yeah i i highly appreciate that kind of script writing <laughs> jeremy jeremy and i work together on Princeless, and we're you know jeremy has gotten to this point where he's like just do 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 the thing you do <laughs> there there was a scene where it was like a magic fight or something and jeremy's like dude here's a toothpaste spread magic fight,
2: make it cool. And I was like, I will, yes. <laughs> so I, but just, yeah. I just finished reading The Wicked and Divine, which is amazing mm. uh, but uh, I, think, uh, I, I make, love Kieran uh, Gill generally but uh, there was a really brilliant uh, you know I, I don't know if at the end of some of the issues he, he does kind of a breakdown of here's what a page looks like it's really interesting from from my point of view and there was a really wonderful one where I can't remember what he'd written but one of the it was going to be a big splash page and he had literally just written something like you know what you're doing just now just do me a wicked and divine page clearly you've got this partnership going I was like this is what happens give me a wicked and divine page it's like okay cool yeah. <laughs>
4: That's the wonderful thing about when with collaborative storytelling and I think um, Anna and the Apocalypse is a, is a wonderful uh, example of that is when you have a group of people that trust each other and, you know, with comics, it's maybe like four people, you know, if we're lucky, but the, with, with film, there's so many moving parts, but it's just such a treat to see, you know, as we've said, the, everybody, we could see everybody enjoying themselves and also everybody's contribution to the work Um, and especially when you're trying to make a comedy movie that has to do with life and death like there's so much potential there for it being overly complex or you know overly simplified you know there's a very very narrow uh, line that you have to follow to really make it uh land and it and in the apocalypse does it wonderfully one of the better i mean one of the best i would say not to i'm i'm gonna be fully honest yes i liked it better than shot of the dead i liked it better than most of the other com- zombie oh, wow. yeah. that's a compliment <laughs> yeah. no. well that's the thing too is that with anna the, Apoc- and, and the apocalypse i was i was terrified of any of those characters dying yeah, all of those characters were so great. Even I mean Savage, okay. But like <laughs> the yes. uh Anna's dad and even like John and we talk about we talked about John a little bit. Well, um Chris John and- was
3: the rare horror movie death that was so shocking I was actually just like gasping out loud. Like I yeah, I <laughs> shouted out loud. Yeah, like, I it, was like, What? So, so, like suddenly and then I just I was well, like you can't kill John off yet. Like John has to survive at least another 20 minutes. What's going on? Like I was just, I was, I mean, that was, you know, the film break, but it was just such a shocking moment uh, and such great, especially after just how le- the levity in that scene before, like it yeah. really did feel safe. And then that safety was so violently ripped away.
4: <laughs> yeah. Well, the, we, we were talking about, um, well chris and chris and ben and jeremy we were talking about jennifer's body <laughs> um and chip and we have this chip scale now apparently and they were talking about how john is the closest thing i guess in the movie to chip but um john was so much more real and likable and um yeah the and that whole scene where they're in the shopping cart and they switch yeah. That was so brilliant, and there's so many things that, and I think Chris and Ben and Jeremy I, said it wonderfully. I
2: love the shopping cart scene. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. Thank you, uh, Malcolm and Ella knocked that out of the park. Um, just, it's it's a tough, tough little moment. Uh, it was one of my favorite things to write, and uh, it's one of the you know when when you're writing for screen, there's a level of having to accept that nothing is going to be the way that you expect it to look in your head, and um, because you know you have locations, you have you know you have to make your days. What's really, really amazing for me with Anna is that um, the the kind of shopping trolley scene on the high streets and the scene at the, the, during I Will Believe at the end where we cut away to all the other characters um, who have been zombified. Both of those um, look exactly the way I pictured them uh, when Mm. I was writing them. And I remember seeing the Russian... I remember seeing the rushes when John had shot the high street scene. Uh, a little, little, little aside on the high street scene, which is where, you know, talk about making uh, lemonade at lemons. Uh, that high street um, that is destroyed and has Christmas trees and decorations all over and everything's a mess. Um, that was only partially done by the art department. It was meant to look like that for that scene. However, all of those decorations had been up looking perfect and pristine and beautiful uh, the previous day. When we had had some snow, when we shot the original opening to the movie, which was a massive song and dance number on a snow-covered street with beautiful (laughs) decorations, with uh, the the What A Time To Be Alive song, which now, I I guess, for the the cuts most people see is at the end, was the opening of the film. It was the worst weather of the entire shoot, that one day. We showed up at 6 a.m., it had snowed, it was gorgeous. I remember looking at John going, I can't believe this. How perfect does this street look? And our, oh God, uh, Ryan Clackery, our, art, uh, our uh, production designer, art director, he, um, he was so happy. He's like, look at this place, it's gorgeous. Uh, so we all arrive up at 6 a.m., everyone gets fed, uh, the cast are going off to their makeup. Um, round about 8 a.m., the wind picks up, and there's a little bit of rain in the air, and by the time we are due to start shooting... <sighs> raging winds and rain have kicked in. Half of the decorations are falling down. We have nowhere else we're going, we can go. So we have to shoot that day. We have to shoot what we intended to do. And we spent the most uncomfortable, freezing 10 hours out in the drive. And this is like, this is January in Scotland.
1: all oh, because like no one was executing their vision as they desired. Like, <laughs> Nobody, <laughs> no everyone, one.
2: everyone was unhappy. Everyone,
1: and then John, poor John. And then John go uh, and everyone be like, "Why can't you do this better?" And I'm like, "I am. I don't know how. <laughs> like, I don't know how to do this better. I don't know how to choreograph this better. I have done everything I can do, and this is what it, this has turned into." And there's a photo somewhere on the internet of Alan, me, Emma, Claire, Tommy, yeah, and Tommy, and someone was. I think someone was just like, "All right, guys, look happy," and we all just started like scream crying. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> it was so cold and so miserable. I remember Tommy and I by the monitors and it must have been like three afternoon at that point, it was very clear that even though we were soldiering on, we could not use this footage. Oh. And oh, we were man. just looking at oh, each other. Man. And that was where Tommy and I first talked about doing an animated opening, actually. And we suggested yeah. the idea to Nathan later. And I was just like, well, a bit like Grease. <laughs> because yeah. we can't use this. So the, the beginning of the movie was meant to be that. And the reason I bring it up now is because the destruction, which was, <laughs> which was wrought by the weather, gives that whole scene an amazing look on the very next day when the weather calmed down, the sun was in the sky and they shot that scene with the shopping trolleys as, uh, as the sun was going down. And it's gorgeous because you've got this destroyed high street uh, and the whole scene becomes about these two friends who are finally admitting to a really difficult truth between them against just devastation. Um, mm-hmm. So I was so pleased given my, my big worry, cause I love that scene and it's such an important scene. My big worry coming out of the day Coming out the day that our beautiful opening was destroyed by the weather was we would get the same weather the next day and we would have to try something different and not be able to use our shopping our shopping trolleys. Um, wow. But as it turned out, yeah, it, it, I think it's a lovely little scene and, and they do brilliant work. And the shopping
3: trolleys really just to add this great like physicality to the yeah. scene. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the song that Chris would never forgive us if we didn't <laughs> yes. ask for like <laughs> a bit of a breakdown on "Soldier at War." <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's yeah, so speaking funny. Speaking of shopping carts, oh, it's uh yeah, "Soldier at War." So I mean, it's a shame we don't have Roddy and Tommy, um, the geniuses that they are. Uh, "Soldier at War" went through like other things, many different forms. Um, it was originally intended to be a um almost like an ode to video games uh, in a very very early dri- i remember ryan referencing scott pilgrim um, yes. a lot with that and just saying i actually want this to be a really surreal kind of crazy sequence where like they're in a video game store like, okay that's interesting okay yeah so a y- little bit of that carried forward to the end the final version it was very clear we did not have the budget to I'd- hire and press a video game store and then destroy it so i'd written it as
3: three frame be like is that an Nintendo 64 yeah. controller, guys. <laughs> yes. So, this is amazing. Yeah, the
2: <laughs> controller stuff made it through. I'd written it in a, a, a car park, um, like a multi-story, because I thought, actually, that, that's a bit like levels. And in the end, we had the location we had. So where that is shot is just around the corner from where the high street location is. But with, the, w- with Roddy and Tommy, it was always about, okay, what we want from this is, we want this to be the moment in the film where Nick, who we have generally considered quite rightly to be an asshole up until now, kind of pulls people around a little bit because he's so charismatic um, and this is a it song all about yeah, doesn't it but do you know what um, you know I, I think there are I, th- I think the way that John directed it is gorgeous Do you know the one thing that I wish we'd kept which is the same and I know why I didn't because it's stupid But at one point in the script I referenced John Woo and said it's like a Doves moment but they're using toilet roll which I thought (laughs) it would have been really funny but um, we couldn't, toilet roll was a problem but he like all the other stuff with the, the steak on the the um the fishing line the kind of using the controllers um, as weapons the watermelon moment is all john uh that was his idea and it's genius and gorgeous and funny the water slow motion water over the face was mine in the script but john realized what he really wanted he told <laughs> oh god he told um the actor uh playing graham uh, who's the character with the watermelon when you break that watermelon you're going to be slow motion and i want on your face, what I want to see is the best orgasm you've ever had. <laughs> um, and when you I, I watch can, that song absolutely. knowing that, it's never not funny. Uh, but it, it's, it's Roddy and Tommy's music. It's that ode to, we, we talked a lot about the Karate Kids. We talked a lot about those kind of 80s flicks, which are kind of macho, but kind of camp at the same time. Um, and, and the way that those two things feed into each other. And then, of course, the secret sauce is Ben Wiggins, uh, yeah. a man a man who defies the notion of sexuality because he is just unbelievably charismatic and attractive to every human being on the planet i think regardless <laughs> of whatever they cons- ben, so whatever they consider themselves so to like- be on the kinsey scale uh he is so uh, nason used to refer to him as the man with eyes you could dive into and uh, and ben was really nervous about it because ben is not a natural singer and hadn't done much before but he took singing lessons uh, and then went into the studio with Roddy and Tommy, and they were like, "Do you want to try falsetto?" And when he did, we knew the song was going to work.
0: <laughs> yeah, that he is incredible in that that moment. I think one of the parts we talked about the most was sort of the uh, them them pushing him on the shopping cart, like he's you know Washington so on the Delaware.
2: So good. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just so
0: it's so fantastic.
2: Um,
0: that
1: was one of those days where like I was there as well to choreograph. And then I like, was like, I don't need to do anything. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I was going to ask that if, if I any was of that gonna was let them have fun. You no, then- I
1: was there more as like a, like a, a scale of too little or too much. And like, which is always kind of nice to be around to just like, kind of go up to your friends and be like, You see what you did there? And then Ben would be like, yeah, I'm like, you need to take that too far. And he's like, I will. And I'm like, okay, (laughs) great.
3: (laughs) (laughs) That whole character of Nick, especially from that song on, like with every line he has, the character just becomes so much more nuanced and complex and developed. Like this whole off-screen backstory we kind of get with him and his dad is just like yeah like how did you come up with like kind of that backstory for him
2: well it it, it, that that one kind of came over time do you know what i find really really pleasing about this it's actually incredibly touching for me um when i heard you guys really break down that scene um it gave me a warm glow inside because uh i remember chatting to the crew afterwards when we were wrapping the film and chatting to jillian uh, the script uh script editor script exec and saying do you know I'm so proud of this film. Everyone's done an amazing job. I'm still not sure to this day I was, I actually nailed that scene between Anna and Nick at the end. I'm still not quite sure it works. And to this, I, I always reflect back upon that scene in the script and think, is it a bit on the nose? Does it come naturally? Does it? And to hear you all break it down and, and, and really feel like it worked really meant a lot to me. Um, with Nick, what was really, and this is, I think the teacher coming out, you start with a job character. And I knew very early on when we looked at the, kind of social politics of the movie, there were two things that were really important to me when I kind of embarked upon the solo draft after, after we lost Ryan, which was, firstly, there's to get this thing financed, there's gonna be a lot of pushback against some of the aspects that we consider more um, subtly feminist. So there are gonna be a lot of like, oh, can Anne and John not just kiss? That we're gonna to have to fight back. And we're gonna to have to have a think about how that presents and I, I am, um, I will be damned before somebody puts my name on a script which has the barrier gaze trope in it. Uh, I'd been reading mm. a lot of stuff on Twitter. I'd been Thank having you. my heart broken by the number of times <laughs> that straight writers had just not picked up on this stuff. And they were basically, but we've got gay characters and they're amazing, and then they die two episodes later. Um, and it just seems so obvious to me, like you know. And to be fair, like this was never an argument amongst the development team. I raised it early and just said, look. I think Steph should be a queer character, it's important we have a queer character, but the one thing we need to bear in mind at all times is if we swap characters around, if a different character becomes queer, if we think about the representation different ways, that character cannot die. They need to walk away because apparently this never happens. So with those two things (laughs) in mind, then you start to look at the other characters and think about who they are when they die. And Nick was always the difficult one because when you have all of these kind of social politics in mind, you want to represent a character who doesn't naturally fit into that because then you're just kind of writing you're writing a woke script, which is very easy. You know, you're, you're not actually a- a- asking any challenging questions. You're not saying, well, these are things people face in the world. I'm never gonna put a slur in there, but I definitely want to represent the fact that not everybody is down with everything. Uh, mm-hmm. And Nick was my way into that. I knew very early on that he and Anna had had a thing. And then I, then I was like, well, if we're doing this properly, and again, Nathan and I used to talk about this a lot, It's quite a broad movie. It's quite a stylized movie, but it's about real things that teenagers experience. So they've not just had a thing, they've slept together. Let's just, let's just say they've slept together. The very next step from that then becomes, and the one thing I cannot do here is have Anna embarrassed that she slept with a boy. It's like that's, you see it all the time and it's dumb. Like Mm -hmm. so (laughs) many of my students were sleeping with each other. It's dumb. Once you've made those steps, Nick starts to kind of crystallize around that. And it was like, okay, He's definitely being a bit of a dick about it, but I don't think he's being a dick about it because they slept together. I think he got freaked out and I think they got close. What would they get close over? Well, she's got a thing going on with her dad and I know that Nick is a bit of a rebel. It's kind of interesting that there's an army base in town. What if his dad's in the army? Well, no, they wouldn't. They would be mismatched then, wouldn't they? And it kind of came organically thinking through that. So by the time I reached that scene, as much as the script was pre-planned and I knew at that point Nick would kind of essentially I think in my outline it said this is the scene where Nick realises Anna's owed an apology and when I came to write the scene I realised no it's not, it's not just that, it's the scene where we realise actually Nick's been holding something back this entire time which explains why he's so emotionally wrought and buttoned up Uh, and then you know you just pull from the zombie uh, you know catalogue don't you? the idea that I had to kill somebody whom I loved now to be fair to Ryan to give him a shout out, in the very original um, short Anna has to kill John because Anna, John gets bitten and zombifies and attacks her and then Anna has to kill him. It's quite bleak. And I always liked the beats, but I thought it was wrong for Anna and John. And then I realized, oh, this is, this is where we have it. This is, what's ha- this is why Nick is so broken. It's easy. I think it's somewhere I remember saying, um, Nick's, problem is that, Nick's problem is that he'd like to change his spots, but everyone loves a leopard. And, and, <laughs> and that's kind of at the center of who he is. And this thing with his dad has properly broken him. But while his friends are around he's able just to pretend everything was the way it was. And that's right at the center of Soldier at War as well. Mm. But by the time we hit that scene in the tech room, and it was very deliberately a tech room as well, because it was the room where he and his friends would have hung out and carved their names into the table and all of that. That's where Nick kind of became a real character for me. Uh, And it's really lovely that that sold for you guys as well. And honestly, do you know, the way that the queer community has really embraced this movie will never not make me happy. But the way that so many um, queer women in particular really find John and Nick compelling straight male characters I find really satisfying as well because it can yeah. be done it's just about thinking about things I guess
4: totally yeah, yeah absolutely did did you have a uh, copy of the uh or I should say did you have a version of the script that
2: where Nick died uh yes Nick surviving happened really late and it was basically it basically came down to oh my god, Anna is, <laughs> Anna's walking out of this theatre with a bloodbath. <laughs> yeah. In the last, you know, the, the, the end of that movie is so dark and we were worried for a long time that it was going to stop us getting it made. But it was one thing Ryan and I were always really firm on, that we wanted to make a movie with heart and laughs and hope, but we're not going to run away from the fact that at the end, dark stuff happens because this is about a dark experience for teens we want to present as real. So once John dies and Tony dies, and both of those things work, we've seen Chris and Lisa die off camera. We're pretty sure Steph survives because we only saw her walk away. But then of course Anna gets out at the end and it looks like she might have bailed on her. It just struck me that Nick going down in a blaze of glory is a repeated beat. You know, Mm -hmm. we've seen John go down that way. Nick almost sacrifices himself for Anna and I didn't want two straight men doing that twice. So -hmm. there was that sense of like, well, of course Nick would do this because that's who he is. But actually, of course he would survive because survi- he and Anna are the survivors. Actually, he, Anna and Steph, if you think about yes. them, are actually the survivors of the group. If you think about their personality, if you think about what they've been through, if you think about the way that they face out to the world, it actually it makes no sense at all in terms of the archetypes of these movies that they survive together. But it makes every sense if you think about who they are.
4: And I and Nick walking that's... into that
2: theater at the end. I also came up with the line first I don't like your boyfriend and i was <laughs> saying he's not my boyfriend and then Tony saying well there's some good news so the moment I had that line I knew as the scene worked also oh it's okay I can bring him back because I've got a gag.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that that scene where he sort of sacrifices himself I think works so well there because it is clear that it's not about Anna like especially with his reprise of you know his own song of his when it comes to killing zombies i'm the head of the class like it's clear that that is about him yeah he is going to go down killing zombies that is what he's going to do it's not because he wants her he wants anything from her other than you know for him to have been the one to save her
2: i also think dying lets nick off the hook you know, mm-hmm. like Anna, Anna needs to live because it's Anna's story and it's her coming of age. And actually the whole thing, what, what was actually really difficult and I think remains difficult that Anna is a character this day now. Ella Hunt deserves so much credit for the amount of kind of charisma and heart that she embodied the character with. But Anna is a difficult character because she starts the movie wanting to get out of town and she finishes the movie getting out of town. And the whole thing about giving her an arc is she has to realize there's a cost. That's not quite as broad and kind of cinematic as coming of age themes usually are you know they're usually a lot more like the most classic one is there's no place like home which is actually pretty toxic as messages <laughs> go but um the, the notion that you have this big broad i'm coming of age and i have learned this really positive lesson anna's lesson is i was right to want to go but i didn't appreciate what i had which is a little bit more subtle um, but she has to survive steph has to survive a because you know queer characters just don't but also she's a survivor and she still has to find her way in the world like she still has story to tell and nick has to survive because if he dies right now he gets off the hook like he's 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 he hasn't lived his life brilliantly he's definitely a little broken but if he dies right now he gets to die the hero he thinks he is yeah. and that's not good enough like he he needs to learn to be a better person so when the three of them leave in that car at the end they all still have places to go i guess that yeah,
4: reminds but. me of, of a question ben had i think
3: well i think we i think we kind of uh answered it earlier <laughs> <laughs> that it's re- that if we're moving forward it's really uh in terms of in the romance angle it's anna death. <laughs> <laughs> uh you can
0: ben came really strong when we were talking about it on the power throuple angle i saw that yeah
2: it was really funny um <laughs> do you know the only thing that makes me think that i i don't know if steph would stand for nick like you know yeah i, I know that can work in all no. sorts of combinations but i just don't know if she would put up with him enough for him to be around It's that what do you think, Sarah, post lots of character development for nick nick still
3: <laughs> <got a lot laughs> more to go.
1: i wouldn't be surprised i think what would happen if there was like a 2.0 is like i, I bet you steph tails it for a bit. Yeah, <laughs> she's like, mm-hmm. I gotta go, and I gotta figure out who I am. And then they find her, and she's like totally transformed into crazy earth witch. <laughs> <laughs> Please make this Just movie. like figured out how to harvest. So. Yeah, I
3: am, I am so into like
1: harvest the earth and like connect to like vibrations within it. <laughs> <laughs> and then they do black magic. Um, they try to bring Lisa and Chris back from the dead, but nice. because that's imperfect alchemy you can't bring back something that no longer exists they end up like morphing together to create like a frankenstein person so it's like lisa and chris are the same person
2: marley and chris <laughs> would love that
3: i love that now <laughs> then they really are together for and us. then they really yeah. are yeah
2: oh. basically uh, sarah is pitching the gremlins 2 to so the first movie's gremlins <laughs> oh my god
4: <laughs> <laughs> so hulk hogan has to be in
2: it yes <laughs> oh but i think hulk hogan's a little more problematic these days isn't he oh yeah that's true that's <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, definitely so, we'll just find just another wrestler Randy people Savage. like john Your cena batista seems nice yeah, yeah. Which yeah. Cena. So, <laughs> I feel like it would probably
3: be John that has to jump through like a brick wall making a perfect Batman symbol. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes.
2: Malcolm would be very on board for that. Uh, Malcolm, uh, another Easter egg side note, uh, wore an absolutely incredible Ghostbusters uh, jumper when he was auditioning for, the fir- for John for the first time. And we're not going to lie, the jumper really helped. Like uh, just seeing him in it was like, oh, this works. But he was wearing a really wonderful piece of Ghostbusters network.
3: The one John line that, uh, that I was talking about is, because like, we talked about how anything pandemic-related hits different in now oh, in yeah. 2020, but there was also just a hits differently after Avengers Endgame of John going, <laughs> Iron Man is alive. Oh, yeah. yeah.
2: Oh. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not going to lie, when I was sitting in the cinema watching that, I did have a little chuckle to myself. I was like, well, <laughs> that date is quicker than expected. <laughs> uh,
3: do
2: you know what really is, is wonderful, kind of looking at the Anna stuff? We, we, Ryan and I talked so much about the conversation Nick and John would have in the ball pit about celebrities. And the, all credit was due, that was Ryan's idea that you know, two boys, they're a bit bored. I bet they talk about who's been zombified and who hasn't. And it was also, his, the Mary shag, kill was also Ryan's idea. But we talked, that the, the celebrities changed so much over time. And recently, Uh, After the Iron Man stuff, I was like, oh, I wonder if that's all. I mean, Beyonce's fairly evergreen. I don't know how often people talk about Rihanna now. It's like Taylor Swift, I don't know. I did a Google for most search celebrities. Tay-Tay's still fine. She's still (laughs) up there at the top. I was just like, that is is just just genius screenwriting. That's never going to age. Taylor (laughs) Swift will always, always be a contemporary reference. I think the
3: one thing we're all agreed on is that in the zombie apocalypse, Tom Holland is not making it an hour.
2: <laughs> oh, mm-hmm. bless his little cotton socks! Right. Uh, yeah, you're right.
0: <laughs> 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 yeah that and the evacuation selfies are definitely a thing like,
2: oh, yeah. so, it feels good.
5: so
0: right.
2: That's I was very sequels. proud of that that came out of the teaching thing that was just like the number of times that our students would find ways of getting the most ridiculously hashtag selfie into their week and uh, the moment we talked about evacuations like well this is the first thing everyone does of it course felt, they take photos of themselves by the fences with zombies
3: it felt <laughs> so that whole sequence like with the the ball pit, like the celebrities and the selfies it yeah. felt so
2: real and so <laughs> far It's also one of the few movies that people reference a lot where our characters instantly just go oh it's zombies as opposed to it's walkers it's you know it's you know it's infected it's uh, it's, it's it's a it's a movie set in a world where zombie movies exist which was always a bit of a challenge.
4: Well, it's really, it's really nice to have a movie, you know, the sort of the postmodern zombie movie where it's the, the whole zombie thing is, is such a trope now that it's, it's refreshing to see people uh, in film, not take that so much for granted in sort of the opposite way where they're like, okay, so these are zombies. And do we have, you know, we know what works in, you know, the zombie film. So we're just going to have mark that as red. Like, okay, we know there's zombies. We know that they, that, that we kill them and all that kind of stuff. And also the, the, coming back around to some of the more tragic elements of the film infection that kills your loved ones is not taken for granted the way that it is in other Mm. uh other zombie films and that's you know one of the reasons that it's hard for me to get into zombie films is because i feel like that's taken for granted so much but this movie really even though it is a comedy musical really wonderfully and 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 simply it's not over it's not over complex but it still brings so much out of those characters of that that reality that they're having to face
2: that's lovely um so, I've talked a lot, Sarah. did you want to did you want to chip in on that? <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, I, I, uh, I agree. I think it's kind of this isn't necessarily to contribute to this is a a, a, a new path I'm going down based off of what you just said. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that I find that we're we we do not really know what we're going to do in these situations, right? And like, mm. and I was reading. I was was listening to a podcast about, hear me out, about the London bombings during World War II. Mm -hmm. And there was something like statistically depression in the city of London went down something crazy like 50% after that over the next few years. Because even though that was the worst thing that possibly could have happened, people died. Terror like you've never seen. Like suddenly people had something to fight for. And that sense of responsibility and community is so barren and um, deeply you know, downtown life, suburban life, and especially in suburban life, which is wild because yeah. you are on a sidewalk of thousands of people and you're all strangers. you mm. you can touch the person's house next to you and they're strangers. So finally, having this sense of camaraderie and, like, in a weird way, like it's even kind of like now too. Like my auto response to bad situations is to be like, "What is like, like true laughter and and chaotic, <laughs> like chaotic disbelief." And humor, because it's so, you truly realize, especially in this time, that like this is all nonsense, this is all chaos, and all this structure is just like these silly little rules that we've paid for ourselves to kind of like allow all of us to get along amicably. But what it's also doing is preventing us from actually being sincere because we have to abide by these rules, which please everybody but doesn't actually bring the best out of us. And I even, in another capacity, like, The way that people responded to COVID 19 was almost like everybody became the extras in the zombie film. Nobody was the hero. Yeah,
2: Yeah. really interesting. Nobody
1: was Brad Pitt in Mm. what was that film, the the zombie film? Was that one?
2: World War Z? Z, sorry. No no, one was.
1: Nobody saw themselves as the hero of the story. Everybody became the crazy mob. Everybody went, oh, in the films, we all rushed to the stores and fight for toilet paper. So that's what we do. We all do that. Like, and it's like, why haven't you seen yourselves as the author of this narrative? Why are you suddenly the the mob again? And it's because that's what we believe we are, is that we aren't actually individuals who can go out and belong to other people. We're just a part of like this huge amorphous world. But we do have responsibilities and we can choose the the stories that we want to write and we can live those out. We don't have to go hoarding toilet paper. But it's been like an interesting thing, kind of witnessing that happen.
2: Mm. Yeah, I, th- I think what's really from what you just said there, Sarah, is really interesting when you look at that through the kind of writing lens and through um, you know what Emily was saying about realistic reactions to to infection and death is that mm. it's it's really uh, it's really hard to write a story where grand stakes are important to just one or two people Uh, and I I think that's where you know something like like I am a massive Marvel movie fanboy and I was absolutely one of those people crying when those portals opened at the end of uh, Avengers Endgame because those big archetypal mythic moments really strike us somewhere really uh, they strike us somewhere deep inside that I think goes beyond our everyday experience and that's why they work when we were looking at Anna and 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 to touch upon what just Sarah said about the, the pandemic and stuff We knew we were making a really stylized, really broad movie, but the the only thing that made it work for us was to think about, okay, if these were real teens in a nowhere town where nothing happens and now the biggest thing ever has happened, Mm. I don't know how you process that beyond, oh no, what about my dad? Oh no, what about my best friend? Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's where that kind of stuff comes home. But it also mm-hmm. was a massive nightmare for writing because it's an ensemble movie in which we had to consistently look for sleight-of-hand ways to not have to take into account every bloody family member of every character. Yeah, which is why right. when you actually take a step back, the one thing that always bothers me a little bit with the film, it doesn't seem to affect it anymore, which I'm glad about, is I was always slightly concerned there was a, a, an ever-so-slight um, subtext that, all of our characters were slightly from broken families which is like never the intention but when you stop and look and say well Steph's parents are away and Nick's dad who he kills in the army and Chris lives with his gran and the parents aren't around we don't really find out much about Lisa's parents at all but the canon is they've gone to stay um, she and uh, her mother and stepfather have gone to stay with her stepfather's sister for Christmas and she's staying with Chris and his gran for the first time and of course you've got Anna you know who herself has a dead mother and that is a trope which it's definitely problematic in all sorts of ways. Uh, you know, so I always had that slight concern of like, oh, what do we do? Now, John, John's mum is in that movie. Uh, I think maybe he picks oh. up on this at some point.
1: And oh, John's, John's mum. Everyone's favourite question <laughs> <Yeah>. mark.
2: Chris <laughs> uh, is going to be lines. elated to hear this. She had scenes, uh, not, not massive amounts, way more in earlier scripts. And then as we started to kind of refine the script because there were too many characters, she had to kind of drop down a bit. But there was a point I had to say to the guys, look, I know, and I know this is going to be cut back, but John can't just exist in a vacuum. <laughs> like right. this whole thing about we're gonna go to the school and we're gonna save Lisa and we're gonna save Tony and John doesn't care. And yes. <laughs> We need Beetle something. Yeah. So John's mum is there, but I, I do remember. I, I think it may have been in your podcast actually saying at some point, you're like, "Is John's mum the theatre? Like, is this a thing that people in towns go go to a, go to see a show that their that's kid is so getting in?" <laughs> at which point, I answered out loud, "Yes, it's exactly what people in small towns do." Yes. So yeah, that's what we show. did that. That yeah. was my
1: small town. If the school sure. show
2: was on and there's nothing else to do that night, in my mind, she was in the PTA. Uh, but she actually has an argument with Savage, which we shot where she essentially, uh, in a scene where he's like, oh, this is my school and you can't leave and I've got a 10 point plan. She turns around to him and says something along the lines of, if you love this place so much, you can just rot in it. And then she starts to pack stuff up. And it was a lovely little moment, but there was that big thing in the movie of like, who are you? (laughs) Why so are you saying Chris, Chris actually was,
0: was sure that that was John's mom yep, and that's not John's sure mom. if John's mom was a teacher and that was why she was there or
3: if
2: uh... nope just, just John's mom who's on the PTA and was there for the show <laughs> that night uh, and, and that's yeah
3: <laughs> gold, gold, gold star for Chris
2: but uh but again it's that point that we were just picking up on there like these things need to be immediate to the kids to matter and i think in the pandemic you have absolutely seen that there's a big concern about the people i live with and those closest to me and those who might be vulnerable and those who might be elderly and but i i completely agree sarah when you put people out on mass you end up either with runs for toilet paper or people rushing to the beach or just say ah this doesn't really affect me and when you're writing a movie about a massive crisis like this, the only way into the drama is just to think of the one or two people who are super important. Uh, The one exception to that rule, of course, being Steph, who cares about the world at large, but doesn't really know how to do anything about it.
1: I also love during your podcast when you're like, how the hell? Would she expect her girlfriend, who's also in high school? <laughs> what? A, like that is so unrealistic and deeply greedy and super codependent. No.
2: Yeah. Uh, so our girlfriend's also older, but not in the, But but didn't make the cut. Uh, yeah. yeah it, it, she, her, her girlfriend, I always thought was in college. Um, That's what I also. And then, think. And, and kind mm-hmm. of in the next town. Uh, so it was it was less like I expected to come over more. Oh, I thought we'd be spending Christmas together. But again, yeah. it's one of those things. God's like screenwriting. It's so hard. <laughs> Just, yeah. So,
3: there's so, so there's much you her... have to
2: pack in. Yeah. She, she uh, never and...
0: starred in the movie, this girlfriend. She was always. No, no. You know, uh, which was, camera.
2: you know, and actually, That's again, cool. it was a really lovely thing. I think you guys touched upon because I, I, I love that you asked the question because it, it was going through my head a lot over you know, does this actually count as representation if we don't see the relationship on screen? And I I really like that you settled on, I think Steph herself is such an openly, clearly, uh, confidently queer character that it counts as that. But I did drag myself through a lot of kind of sleepless nights about, should we see her? But then the problem with that is, in the end, she's going to have to die. And that was where I settled. It's like, that's why we don't. Uh, I don't think we can, because the narrative is already really busy with characters. We already have a couple of relationships which are kind of dysfunctional. And if we bring her in, she's going to exist for Steph to realize she's not really loved. And then this woman dies. And that is the worst thing that we could do with this character.
1: And also um, how nice is it to have one character have an unknown? Like she doesn't yeah. know. She's like, my parents yeah, literally could be yeah. alive or dead. And like I'm living in this limbo and I just have to be okay with it. I will never know if my parents died or not. Or this or my girlfriend. I will never yeah. know. And yeah. like that's crazy that's like yeah. that's like the most that's even more horrible that's like and she's still okay or you know trying to keep it together and pulling a shift
3: it's like uh, uh, it's like yeah. you said uh, it's like you said uh steph is a survivor
4: mm-hmm. absolutely well there's something me too <laughs> yes yes absolutely well i was gonna say that there's another crisis that that is through which i've lived that made this very relatable to me which is the the california fires and yeah the kind of the the kind of reaction to that and and seeing these people prioritize and come together and um you know the 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 humor but also you know taking it as seriously as we really have to and you know the idea of not knowing what's going on you know in this case it was Mostly not knowing what state your house is in, but, you know, also family members being up in the hills and not being able to get a hold of them. But uh, the, that's a very, a very profound angle there with the, you know, you never know how a character is going to act. In this, also talking a little bit more realistically about how you know these characters are trying to survive, and you know some of them think that they are the protagonists, some of them don't, and uh, that's one thing I think is so lovely about the uh, the decisions made at the end of the film with Nick and Steph, and you know who we see and who we don't you know, and I think that, I mean, there's a lot of decisions in this movie are really great to see in film. And sure. I would love to see more. <laughs>
3: I think one scene that really shows beautifully the importance and the stakes of small things was uh, the scene of Chris risking his life to get his phone because it could be mm. the only
2: mm. way of like yes. having
3: his grandmother and Lisa still. Absolutely.
2: Yeah, I know it's funny that it, it I wish I could take credit for an incredibly profound moment of screenwriting there. All I had in my head was he's going to need those videos when I kill him later. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And actually the scene ended up writing itself around that moment of like, I want a moment of peril and Chris and Steph need to fall out here. So actually him going back for his phone is really neat. And, you know, but, you know, draft draft two or three after you've written that scene you start to realize oh there's other there's other stuff going on here but sometimes these things are happy accidents (laughs) which is uh, I think once we'd nailed human voice and knew what that sequence was about I knew why he'd be so upset about his phone but these things do take time sometimes
5: yeah
0: yeah so I think we're we're almost out of a question we wanted to ask and we've held you up pretty long here I had a couple of little junk drawer uh, questions that got thrown in here that I just wanted to uh ask uh ben had a question about uh christmas themed names and uh <laughs> i ben pointed that during the podcast i had not even realized that a bunch of the like names are holiday themed yeah um do you have any any that you rejected any that you loved um,
2: well yeah it's, it's it's weird Um. we ryan and i it always tickled us that we do that and it was funny we, we were always insistent on not leaning into it um, so Anna Shepard works well because it's kind of a double pun. Uh, you know, on the one hand, you've got the Shepherds and you've also got the notion that she ends up kind of shepherding the rest of the group. And also I'm a massive Mass Effect fan. So that um, was just yeah. a nice little nod. Nice. Um, and then yeah. once, that, once that train started rolling, it's very hard to stop yourself. Yeah, <laughs> I'll tell you Steph Steph one thing. Well, and... I, yeah, I want to shout out to our, um, uh, our, our uh, producer, Lauren Lamar, who did all of the clearances for names for this movie. Another thing I was completely ignorant of uh, until we had to do it, we had to shuffle all of those around because, and I don't want to say it in case it's a weird legality thing, but Steph had the surname of one of the other characters at one point, and it turned out there was literally only one Steph X in the entire UK. And that meant we couldn't use the name because we would be be in legal trouble for misrepresenting that particular human being.
1: That one Uh, person. (laughs) One person in the entire
2: UK whose name is Steph X. Um, so we ended up juggling a lot of those around to the point where I genuinely don't remember them all now. I know that Steph North, I know Anna Shepherd, and I'm pretty sure it's John Pine. And obviously everyone knows Nick Saint because that's a terrible, terrible point <laughs> that most people miss, uh, which I really love. Um, At one point, uh, and it was too far, but at one point in the draft, Ryan and I had his gang called the Disciples, (laughs) Ah! (laughs) which we found very funny. (laughs) Again, you sometimes have to pull back a little bit. Um, But yeah, I I actually don't remember what we settled on for Chris and for Lisa, but I know Frost was in there at one point. Um, Oh, it's Lisa Snow. It's definitely mm-hmm. Lisa Snow, which I, I guess Lusus means, Lusus no. I think it means it's Chris. It was Chris Frost because for a while in the script he was Chris Pine, and it took me that long to uh. realise we couldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> so it was Pine? I don't, I don't see, you know that way you just can't see the wood for the trees, literally in this case. Uh, <laughs> and it's just like, oh, oh, wait, Chris Pine? No, wait, hang on. <laughs> um, so they all shuffled down. It was yeah, it was a bit of fun that caused way more trouble than it really deserved.
0: <laughs> the the one other uh, junk drawer question I had here was. Uh, TJ, uh, who has done some of these episodes with us, wanted, to, uh, ask about, wanted me to ask about the Buffy musical and how much influence it had on, on you and on this movie.
2: <laughs> All the influence in the world. Uh, I am a diehard, but Buffy the Vampire Slayer quite literally changed my life. Uh, and uh, that, that TV show was in my veins. Um, that TV show was the reason God, this is so inside baseball now. Uh, when, I started, uh, when I started university, weirdly, um, I applied to do a joint honors in computing science and theater studies because it was the late 90s and you could do whatever you wanted. Right. Uh, and uh, my thinking was, well, I love theater and computing will get me a job. So, hey, uh, I realized very quickly I despised computing science because I hate maths and I just really struggled with it. And I took an English lit as my third subject. I was like, I think I want to do English in theater. And I watched um, an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and I got to the end of it feeling super moved and, and God this is so emo, said out out loud to my 18 year old self in the room as I was watching it, I can't study computing. Like I just said it out loud at the end of an episode of Buffy because I'd been so moved by the plight of these teens in the supernatural world. Um, and I changed my, I changed my degree as a result and focused on English and theater, which led me to teaching, which led me to writing and everything else. Um, so <sighs> Buffy is enormously important to me. And Once More With Feeling is, uh, a gen- genuine, I think it's a genuine watermark in television and alongside Hush and Restless, um, and The Body. Uh, I, oh God, this is not a Buffy podcast. Stop, Alan. <laughs> um, I, I could talk about those for a long time. Uh, yeah. So there was a lot, there was a lot of it in in Anna when I was looking at it but I think the one thing that was really important to me was we're going to create a a story with the vibe of those things but very specifically through um, the voice of ourselves you know and and the students I taught the upbringing I had and John had and Mason had you know Ryan had Nick had you know the, the fact that the production team as a whole were drawing upon very British experiences for what is in many ways a very American format was very much in our minds but every time somebody references Buffy another angel of my life gets his wings
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's fantastic to know I'm I'm sure TJ will uh appreciate that well that uh, it's we've had you guys here uh for quite a while now um so before before we let you go was there are you guys working on anything right now that you wanted to promote or let let people know about
1: Sarah? Alan, me, Well. uh i am as i said working on some music which will come out early next year i think it's gonna be really weird i've had a long time kind of collecting and selecting band players and then getting rid of them because um and i quote every single time some hipster with a chip on their shoulder. Look, I'm a hipster too, but there's different (laughs) breeds. Um, uh, Being like, I don't know, Sarah, it's just too theatrical. And I'm like, guys, (laughs) David Bowie was a mime. (laughs) (laughs)
5: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and David Byrne studied Kabuki theater, which is the entire concept of what The Talking Heads is based oh, on. very yes. theatrical. Yeah, yes, deeply theatrical. Absolutely. And I'm like, what's wrong with you? So it's it's like highly stylized. And I'm very excited. And I'm like not compromising my integrity for the first time. So I'm very excited to do it. <laughs> oh, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, and just working on some TV shows right now. I'm choreographing. Um, I'm playing um, the role of uh, a nod to who is Martha Graham, the famous contemporary choreographer. Oh, wow. Um, So, yeah, I got an opportunity to play her. So, yeah, that'll be done probably in the next month or so. But it's just been, more than anything, just kind of collaborating with my friends and family and trying to see what the next few steps of my future is going to look like. And I really want to make sure that no matter what it is, that I have creative control over my ideas and that I provide opportunities for the people I love and my friends and get, bring them into the
4: party. So if you guys want to be in the band, you can be in the band. <laughs> I don't know what's, I don't know. I don't really play anything, but. Um, so you
1: don't have to. <laughs> if
4: you want album art, I can do that.
1: I, that's incredible. You know what? I'll get back in touch with you about oh that because that's please. very cool.
4: I would I'd love to. to talk to you more about that. Do you guys have uh, social media stuff?
1: sarah swire at sarah swire instagram that's don't my twitter don't trust that i'm never on there (laughs) (laughs)
4: um but yeah i'm mostly
1: on instagram as my platform big old scrapbook
2: um and i am oh god i'm I'm that really annoying writer who's working on loads of stuff and can't talk about any of it um it's so frustrating and it's the weirdest i mean i I would have to tell you guys this it's it's the weirdest job in the world in that you can make a living and be constantly working on things and quite literally have nothing made for years (laughs) so you can say to people yeah i'm working on loads of stuff oh when's it out Uh, (laughs) sometime maybe if it gets made um so yeah I'm, i'm on a horror movie right now which is based on an indie graphic novel and that's all i can say um, with a really great uh, producer um, who's made a bunch of stuff in the past. And that's been a really amazing experience. We hope it gets made, we're talking to directors, but there's still a lot to go. And obviously in these times of COVID, uh, making a horror movie where you're gonna require a lot of supporting artists is a difficult prospect. So hopefully, hopefully we can get to shoot that next year, but we'll see. Uh, but that's kind of a, a techno horror um, about uh, communication and the relationship between two sisters. Um, and I really love it uh, and uh, I'm working on some early TV stuff. I've got, I've got the opportunity now to do a lot of original stuff of my own, which means it's all at very early stages, but there is um, a decent bit of interest around and I've got some really wacky stories that I'm, I'm enjoying kind of delving into. Um, I was saying to uh, Sarah just before a little catch up, um, A lot of my stories have female protagonists. And my agent, who is uh, Fiona Grant at the Charles Agency, who's wonderful, uh, one of my best friends, friends, uh, she was saying early in the summer, look, I I love the way you write women, I love your scripts, but do you have anything to say about men? And I had this really weird, visceral reaction where I just said, no. Um, and then had to kind of sit with that for a bit and oh that's that's why do i oh interesting and and yeah long and short of that is i went off and wrote a really interesting kind of sci-fi road movie about toxic masculinity and and my (laughs) issues with my issues with what it is to be a man and the problems and um what it feels like to kind of reflect back on my own behavior in the past and things and that's been kind of uncomfortable but i think is a really i think is a really interesting uh, version of what a road movie could be. So I'm hoping to get that place somewhere. Um, I'm doing some video games work with Blazing Griffin, who made *Anne and the Apocalypse. Uh, they also have a video game studio and a post-production house. They're a powerhouse operation. Um, and we have nothing to announce, but I do, um, I do a lot of narrative work with them and their projects when they start out um, on the video game side. And we're doing some really fun stuff there at the moment that I had to do some really interesting American research on the other day, actually. So that was cool. And I'm also working on a stage musical that I cannot talk about, which is a shame. And again, is very early, but I'm having a ton of fun and um, working with people I've worked with before on that as well. So a, f- a bunch of projects across various things that I'm really enjoying. None of which I can talk about, and I don't think I'll be able to for a little while. I'm afraid. <laughs> we'll we'll, uh, we'll hover around the uh,
4: the Twitters and the Instagrams for those. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, oh, no, I'm,
2: yeah. I'm Alan H. McDonald. Uh, Alan H. Uh, for my very odd middle name uh so alan h mcdonald on twitter and instagram and i'm the opposite of sarah i barely ever use instagram because i'm scared of pictures and i use twitter way too much because it is a horrific cesspool that's destroyed society but i also can't get off it so uh yes yeah, as a writer so you it's can a great find me to there. write
0: and not actually get anything yeah. done
3: well
2: yeah but uh, do you know oh, it's, I,
3: it's such a great use for not getting work done <laughs> in i get in all so serious, much no no work I-
2: done sorry, I, I I do think that the one thing I would say in Twitter's um, favor, and God, it's hard. Uh, but the one thing I would say is, if you curate the people you follow,
5: mm. particularly
2: as someone with a level of privilege that I enjoy, it's a really, it's a really, really good way to try to stay on top of where um, the cultural conversation is with regards to things like oppression, with regards to representation. Um, so it can be the level of privilege I enjoy I can only imagine what it's like to be at the center of that maelstrom to to be someone kind of looking looking in it does it can be exhausting but I think it's super important as long as I do this job that at least I try to stay ahead of where the conversation is at and and it's all about trying not to do any harm I think more than anything so that's really the reason I'm still on Twitter
1: I use Twitter to spy on people that's all it's
2: (laughs) also a very good and LinkedIn (laughs) 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 <laughs> ah, the nerdiest way to spy on people.
1: <laughs> That's why That's I find everybody over consider. the age of 40 that, like, I'm trying
2: to. I'm
3: going to be. An
1: okay, guy. <laughs> I'm
3: going to get ahead on all the business tips. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I just thought I'd hit you up. I hear you had a seven year business anniversary. Huh? <laughs> <laughs>
1: LinkedIn. <sighs> I did, I'm not lying. I've done that before. <laughs> I have a LinkedIn account so I can spy on people that refuse to have social media if I want to figure out if they're. Okay, people to work with because you don't know oh, sometimes. yeah, that that's, that's
2: a good show actually. Good, yeah. yeah, thank yeah. you,
0: Steph, and Thank you, or Steph. <laughs> thank you, <laughs> thank you, Sarah. <laughs> and thank you, Alan. Uh, thank you so much for much, joining guys. us.
2: It's been a, it's been a joy.
4: This is awesome. This is so awesome. This, this um, is oh. incredible.
1: Ah, incredible well yes. i've had a wonderful evening as well i can't speak more highly of you wonderful souls oh thank you. thank you thank you again for
2: taking the time to look at the you know look at the movie with so much um yeah so much heart and in, in, in such a thoughtful manner it's really appreciated
0: this has been a special episode of the progressively horrified podcast this episode was produced by Jeremy Whitley and hosted by Jeremy Whitley, Ben Kahn, and Emily Martin. Progressively Horrified you could use your support on Patreon, where you can unlock Patreon-exclusive episodes, get early access to regular episodes, and get Progressively Horrified gear. Our theme music is Epic Darkness by Mario Call 6 and was provided royalty-free from Pixabay. Thanks for listening.
3: I still no. have access to a company I used to work for. I still have access to their LinkedIn page and nobody seems to have noticed that as I slowly transform it into a Transformers fan page. Have you oh, actually? Amazing. Yes. <laughs> I'm not going to say
2: which company, but yes. Oh,
4: man. That Incredible. <laughs> yeah. uh,
2: it's just a profile picture of Optimus Prime in a tie. <laughs> <laughs>